When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Go, you Redbirds! Go, you Redbirds! On the battle, fight for ISU! Welcome to In the Nest, the Illinois State Athletics Podcast. Now, here's the voice of the Redbirds, John Fitzgerald. Hi again and welcome in to another edition of In the Nest, the official podcast of Illinois State Redbird Athletics from Learfield. I'm John Fitzgerald and today we're joined by Dr. Jerry Beggs, a professor of marketing here at Illinois State University who is currently in her 14th year as Illinois State's faculty athletic representative. Today's conversation is brought to you in part by Jason's Deli. Redbird fans, all good things start with wholesome ingredients. Visit Jason's Deli in Normal on Veterans Parkway today and receive free ice cream with every purchase. Dr. Beggs, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for having me. 14th year is the faculty athletic representative for the athletic department here at Illinois State University. I think for the vast majority of our audience, why don't we spend some time describing what exactly your role is in that FAR position? Happy to do that. So every uh, university that has an NCAA team, Division One, Two, II, and Three, are required to assign one faculty member to the position of faculty athletics representative. It is it's one of the kind of big three on campuses. The president, the AD, and the FAR um, have uh, signatory responsibilities for the NCAA. The role is really to bridge the gap between athletics and academics, to be um, an advisory position. We, I, I serve at the pleasure of the president, and so I am uh, oversight in, in that regard. Uh, but it's been a wonderful 14 years, and I've truly enjoyed uh, this position in ways that, you know, most service positions, you don't enjoy them as much as I've enjoyed this one. It's been great. Obviously, there's a lot of certification paperwork that takes place with regard to rosters on a yearly basis. 
different things like that, eligibility requirements. But there's also, especially I think at an institution like Illinois State, there's probably been a very unique opportunity to have a hands-on approach with some of the student-athletes. Yes, probably not as much as I I would have liked, especially in recent years, because I've gotten very involved at the national level. But part of the role is the compliance. I work uh, closely with Cindy Harris, our compliance officer, in terms of eligibility and roster and all of that. Over the years, I was able to find some spots where I could add some value. I conduct the annual survey with our student athletes to, to monitor their well-being in all areas uh, of student athlete life. I've been able to get involved with our SAC, or our student athlete advisory committee. Uh, at the conference level, I've been able to get involved. And then, as I already mentioned, I've uh, had the pleasure of getting involved at the national level, which not all FARs get to do. So that's been wonderful. And you talk about that fact, obviously, the longevity and how you've kind of created some opportunities for yourself to better Illinois State, especially from an athletic standpoint. That's gone beyond this campus to the Missouri Valley Conference, obviously, boards, as well as the national boards and the NCAA. It has, and, th- and that's really been uh, an interesting role to play. And it's, I think it's good for Illinois State. It's definitely good for the Missouri Valley Conference to have someone in the room. So I'm on the DWAR 1 Board of Directors serving my fourth and final year in that role. And not every conference gets to have somebody in that room. All the FBS schools do, but the FCS schools rotate. Uh, which which uh, conference get to have presidents in that room. So having me there as an extra person has been really good for the Missouri Valley to have uh, someone in the room, essentially, when they're talking about important issues. And then uh, over the last year, an even more fascinating position that I got to fill was I was on the transformation committee, which was supposed to rework, transform, save might be the better word, college athletics. And, and I can tell you that was a wild ride. We will definitely touch on the Transformation Committee uh, a little bit in this interview coming up. But uh, to go back over those 14 years, as you've begun to, and as you started throughout those 14 years, to work with the Missouri Valley Conference and the National Board, how drastically has athletics, not only on this campus, changed, but in the wider scope, both conference and nationally? If you would have told me five years ago that we would have almost unfettered transfer, right, that we would no longer um, require student athletes to sit out a year and that we would be paying students for their name, image, likeness and voice, I don't know that anybody would have believed you. Honestly, that was probably the hardest thing about the Transformation Committee is that basically we had already transformed college athletics. In my opinion, there was kind of a perfect storm happening. We had COVID which was unlike anything we had ever dealt with before and financially devastating to the NCAA because we didn't host a men's basketball tournament that first year and that generates all of our money, right? Um, And then we had transfer rules changing. Now, as you may or may not know, at 1.5 sports had to sit out a year Mm -hmm. and were not allowed to transfer immediately. Men's and women's basketball being, you know, two of those, that dramatic change there when we, when we dropped that, that rule. And then NIL, which the NCAA was working on and we were trying to get something passed, but when you have an organization at the D1 level that represents 300 and almost 60 uh, member organi- uh, institutions, it's really hard to get everybody on the same page. And so we, we just couldn't make decisions fast enough and the political arena, you know, the, our politicians and our states decided they were going to make NIL rules. And, and so now we have 30 different states with 30 different NIL rules. And, the, and all of those things combined have made for, as I said, a perfect storm. Um, the athletic departments 
are you know, doing their best, but many of them are reeling over all of those changes. I think it's probably safe to say you got a little bit more than you bargained for 14 years ago when you signed on for this assignment. But as you, as you talked about FCS schools and even the FBS schools having kind of a seat at the table, especially the Missouri Valley Conference, and the, some of those national boards, what kind of impact has that had for not only Illinois State, but for some of those smaller schools? What takes place at a lot of those meetings that ends up being so beneficial for the schools? So one of the things they kept telling us during the transformation committee meeting meetings is that in the in the uh, D1 stratosphere, there is a school that has a four million dollar budget, and there is a school that has a two hundred and fifty million dollar budget, and we're all trying to compete against each other. And we really did try to keep the big tent mentality that we're all going to stay in this together. But imagine trying to make rules that apply equally across to those budget levels. What what we set out to do was to try to make it a better, uh, you know, basically floor for student athletes. But m- much of what we suggested, the FBA schools are already doing. It's the $4 million school that is really struggling to provide those minimum level expectations for student athletes. So everybody's, in, uh, everybody's trying to do the same thing. They're trying to make it better for student athletes. We're all in that together. How we do that the budgets we have to do that are very different across all those schools. Missouri Valley is actually very well resourced, uh, in, in my opinion, compared to some of the other, and very well positioned. You know, we've added schools recently. Others, other uh, conferences are truly fighting for their lives, which is why we've seen some D3 schools being picked up sure. and brought into the D1 uh, arena. I'm a little concerned about that, honestly. I think it's a very difficult place to be, and it takes a lot of resources to be a D1 school. We can go back and, and really dig into the transformation committee because I think it's it's so entertaining and so topical right now. Obviously, the it was kind of announced in 2022 at the convention that the next year was going to be spent with this national committee, really putting some work into better the student-athlete experience, both from a mental health standpoint all the way through, as you mentioned, NIL. How time-consuming, first of all, was that year of trying to get together and get on that same page to make the recommendations to the board? So just to go back for a second, in January, the uh, the membership basically approved a new constitution, and then that allowed the Transformation Committee to pick up the reins and start working. We worked every Tuesday for a year with many in-person meetings uh, throughout the year. And a two-hour meeting every Tuesday, we started calling it Transformation Tuesday. Uh, I've hardly known what to do with my Tuesdays since then because my schedule is wide open now. But it was incredible. Every other committee I'd ever served on at the national level was very focused. I was on one of the early transformation uh, trans- transfer working groups, the one that brought you the transfer portal. Thank you very much. Um, also, I was on a committee that looked at standardized testing, which we have dropped, and so very specific, right, uh, ideas. The Transformation Committee essentially was handed the world of college athletics and said, do with it what you will. Um, And so, as you might imagine, there was a whole host of topics that that we considered. The beginning of it was very legalistic, right? One of the reasons we find ourselves in this spot in college athletics is because we are being sued into Mm -hmm. oblivion. The NCAA has multiple lawsuits. Many of them on the antitrust side could result in billions of dollars of damages. And frankly, we just don't have that money. So they spend a lot of money 
uh, battling lawsuits. So we got a lot of education. I have joked that as I retire, I think I might become a lawyer. I have to have at least six credit hours <laughs> already in, in the bank from all of that legal education. So we spent a lot of time talking about antitrust, uh, what areas we needed to focus on. The second half ended up being much more uh, political, right? Where we are asking Congress to do three things for us. And if you'd like, I can talk to talk about those uh, in a minute. But basically, how do we put together a package that, that convinces the politicians who have created things like the College Athlete Bill of Rights that we should be in charge of ourselves, right? Not uh, the politicians, not Congress be in charge of us. So it turned to very much a political uh, focus. And uh, as I told you, it, it was just, it was a fascinating uh, group. They put together a really good group of people, 21 of us across a bunch of different aspects of athletics, from presidents to commissioners to a senior women's administrator. I was the faculty athletic rep and, and a student athlete. It, it was an incredible experience. We obviously have mentioned NIL being a part of those marching orders that you initially had for that year of discussion. What were some of the other points of emphasis? So transfer was very important, um, and we actually uh, put some transfer legislation into place in August. Uh, we quickly found out that we didn't have all the I's dotted and T's crossed because there are pages and pages of interp and Q&A attached to transfer right now. But NIL was a big topic. Enforcement was an area that we knew we needed to do better. Uh, lots of complaints out there in, in, in society, in the press, in the membership, that we weren't being timely, we weren't being consistent with the penalties um, uh, that some of the schools were receiving, uh, mental health and student athlete benefits, frankly, just the, the model of how, student, uh, of how college athletics work was questioned. We had six different models at one point that we whittled down to basically what we are now calling the holistic model, which is very similar to what we've already seen with just some additional uh, benefits and some additional uh, membership expectations. So lots of talk, topics, lots of time, many, many, many hours of work. When you get, as you said, 364, I believe, is the number for Division One members right now, when you try to get them all on the same page and agree to something, or at least put forward something that they hopefully all will agree with moving forward, that's a tall task. When you do so and the outside world is ever evolving and the goalposts are almost moving as we talk about NIL for those things, I really don't know how you guys were able to put anything pen on paper because it seems like the rules are changing almost on a weekly basis sometimes. Well, we, we did kind of circumvent the, the normal legislative cycle. So instead of everything coming up for a vote with the council or with the membership, uh, basically the transformation committee was, t was told you're going to bring a lot of this to the board of, of directors, which I was lucky enough to be on both. So I didn't have to, I mean, I didn't have to like relearn it all. It was, it was, it was already in my head, but uh, it was, uh, we, we were able to move faster than normal because it is almost impossible. That's what got us in trouble with NIL. We had been working on NIL rules for a year, year and a half, and we're very close to passing our own NIL rules when all of a sudden California and Florida and some of these states basically said, we're not waiting on you anymore. Here are our rules. Well, I think we can learn from that. This we can't wait until we reach consensus because we may never reach consensus. And so some of the rules that we passed, the board just approved them. We didn't really go through the normal. The transfer rules that went from us, they were vetted by the D1 Council, which is all 32 conferences represented, and then they were approved by the board. Never came to a membership vote. 
So a little bit of a different cycle because we knew we needed to act quickly. It's obviously helpful to get those things done. Now, as you go back and, and mention what you just did with regard to the NIL and some of the states that kind of jumped the shark a little bit and pushed some of those rules forward, what did they push forward in comparison to what you guys had been working on for the year prior, and was there a significant difference when they went public with theirs? Some of the states were significantly different. It's, it's interesting right now because some of those states so, – so we can't have 30 different sets of rules, and then we couldn't punish the states that didn't have a set of rules. Mm-hmm. And so the, the NCAA basically said is no student-athlete will be punished uh, by the NCAA based upon the different state rules state rules. One of the things we're asking Congress for is a preemption preemption of state law. We want to create a national law around NIL. But what's been interesting is some of the states that created laws are actually getting rid of those laws because the lack of laws, if I can say this correctly, was better for student athletes than the state laws, right? So the, the states that didn't have any laws had more permissive about permissibility, right, in NIL areas than the, the laws of the, state, of the states that had them. For example, some state laws said that high school students could not participate in NIL. Other states said they could. What we, what we have happening now, though, is a few states are trying to go even farther. California has a bill out there that would require revenue sharing in any, in any sport that makes money. So men's and women's basketball, football are, are the common ones where, where schools will make money. And it demands revenue sharing by these student athletes in whatever revenue is generated. So states are continuing to evolve with state laws. Uh, they're continuing to get more and more, uh, my, some might say progressive with those laws. We want one set of rules because it's so hard for a student athlete. You live in Iowa, but you're going to school in Illinois. You're being recruited in Texas. Um, some of the stories we heard were kind of crazy about, you know, students leaving high school early because they wanted to be able to participate in NIL and their state didn't allow it. I mean, we were hearing some, some crazy things. So it would be good. That would be a really good one is if we could say, here are the NIL rules for everyone, not state by state. And that's still a process that's being worked on right now? Yes, we are, we are going to go to con- Congress and ask for three things. I already mentioned that. So one of them is the NIL rule, uh, basically preemption of state law. There will be an NIL national rule. The second one is that we're asking for student athletes to not be considered uh, as employees. There are several lawsuits going on right now where um, uh, certain lawyers have, have made a lot of money after, after going after the ongoing after the NCAA, trying to prove that student athletes are employees. There are so many problems with that model, uh, and we could spend hours talking about that. And then the third thing we're asking for is some kind of limited um, antitrust exemption. We are being sued uh, over and over again about antitrust issues that we are creating in a non-competitive market. And again, that's it's, we're spending a lot of time on that if we would, if, if anybody would ever win a case, it would be very devastating to the NCAA. Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate. Not one based on the driver who treats the highway like a racetrack and the shoulder like a passing lane. Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California. Subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors, which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois. 
Due to those factors, and obviously some of the things in the press over the last couple of years, I guess the the valid question would be, regardless of um, how good in acting it's always been, the way things have gone, is college athletics, as we have grown to know it, in a bit of a tenuous position with regard to the NCAA at this point moving forward? I think the NCAA has really gotten a bad reputation and a black eye. Obviously, this is what makes me sad because I think uh, schools like Illinois State and, and most of the schools in Missouri Valley, I think we are doing our best for student athletes. I think we're in that sweet spot where really you've got wonderful people working here, wonderful student athletes, and we're doing a really good job. But what we're hearing basically from Congress, from politicians, is that we don't trust you to take care of student athletes. We don't think you're doing a good enough job and we need to get involved and make sure that student athletes are treated correctly. And that makes me really sad because first of all, I don't think it's true. And and second of all, um, I think many of them unfortunately don't really know all the issues in college athletics and some of the things that they're asking for just aren't possible. It, It would completely change college athletics as we know it. We are the only country in the world that does college athletics the way that we do it. And most other countries think they would love to have what we have. I'm a little bit worried, and I'm all for student athletes, right? I think we should be sharing the wealth, and I think we should be giving them lots of opportunities. But I don't want us to wipe out what you and I love, uh, this thing called college athletics that is, is magical. I mean, we're about to hit, hit into a month in March where the world, you know, essentially yeah. will, will turn its attention to March Madness and watch men and women, young men and women perform, um, you know, on a court. And, and it, that, that's magic. And I don't, want, I don't want it to go away. I want it to continue. So, You talk about kind of the black eye, bad press. I think since, the, since NIL was unveiled to the world, A lot of that has been. You hear some of the extreme cases, and as is always the case with something new and scary to people, it has a negative connotation to it. And there's going to be cases, as there have been in college athletics throughout the last seven decades, of scandal and cheating and different aspects like that. But at its core, what is your belief of NIL, and how can that benefit the student-athletes, for instance, here at Illinois State? Well, again, I'm going to say I think Illinois State's in a really good spot. Um, you have FBS schools where there's a lot of money, right, and a lot of boosters and a lot of companies that will throw money at student-athletes. We're in a, in a different situation in that we're going to have to work with our community, work with our boosters to help them understand. I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with just community members at a tailgate where I, where I start talking about NIL, and they're like, we can do that? You know, we've been t- we taught them for many, many years what they couldn't do, <laughs> and now all of a sudden we can do some of that and they're just not aware so um, the athletics department is doing a great job the development staff um, you know Kyle and Mark and Derek and a bunch of the of working with the community to help them understand what they can do for our student athletes and where I really think there could be potential benefit and this is the marketing professor in me is that Yes, the money is wonderful for student-athletes, and I know most student-athletes would appreciate, you know, an extra $500 in their pocket. But what I think the beauty of it is, what the real benefit of it is teaching them to promote themselves, to brand themselves, to market themselves, to go to a business and say, here's what I have to offer you. Can we, can we negotiate a deal? And I think all of those, you know, personal selling, business negotiation, think of all the wonderful skills that a student athlete can get out of that experience. So that's what I hope it eventually becomes um, at many of our schools. 
I remember on this podcast talking a couple of months ago with Maya and Dayton about when it was unveiled here, what goes into it. And one of the things that struck me, you know, as a longtime coach and administrator in college athletics myself was this is an opportunity. Obviously, not every student athlete is going to make significant money in doing this. But the way it was laid out here, it almost seems like every student athlete will have the opportunity and at the very least will walk out of here much better educated in those kind of professional toolbox settings. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, having Maya and Dayton really puts us ahead of other schools in the Valley, other schools at the FCS level. Again, I admire our administration for putting, uh, you know, their money where their mouth is and essentially saying we're going to work with these student athletes to help them take advantage of NIL. I think actually every student athlete on on our teams could take advantage of that. They may have to work harder than some of the student athletes at, at bigger schools that essentially get handed checks. Um, but, uh, but I think almost, you know, every student athlete has the opportunity here if they're willing to put a little time and energy in it into making some money in NIL. While we're on NIL for the, I guess, the last one, is this going to be a big enough rallying point in future years for some of the bigger FBS schools to almost cause a schism based upon some of the ruling that will come down? When you say schism, meaning pull away from us, Mm -hmm. well, you know, that was the big conversation in the Transformation Committee is do those schools really want to go away from the rest of us? You know, does FBS want to pull away and be its own entity? And lots of conversations about do we pull FBS football away and leave everything else behind? Bottom line, I think it came down to a couple of things. One, the men's basketball tournament, as I mentioned, is kind of a magical thing that we all want to participate in, right? Nobody wants to lose their opportunity there, not only because of the publicity, but also because of the money. For those listening who don't know, there are units attached to every win. And conferences like ours, Missouri Valley, we live on those units. We, we truly do live on every unit. Um, by the way, for those of you who don't know, there's also an academic unit now that uh, that uh, conferences get, and we, Illinois State earns that one every year. So that's a point, a point of pride. Uh, but we live on those units, right? Um, the bottom line, in my mind, ended up being if the FBS schools pulled away, they would have to create something almost just like the NCAA for themselves because they don't trust each other, right? They're going to have to have rules. They're going to have to have somebody looking at eligibility (laughs) and recruiting. And, um, you know, our chair, Greg Sankey, who is the commissioner of SEC, he said, if if I was going to create something better for football, why why wouldn't I just take everything? You know, if there's something better, why aren't we making it better for everybody, essentially? And so the big tent mentality, not 10, big tent with a T (laughs) on it mentality, was that let's see what we can do to keep us all together but shouldn't there be some minimum level of expectation for all D1 student athletes? And so that's where we spent a lot of our time. Student athletes' number one concern was mental health. We now are going to require a dedicated mental health professional be assigned to student athletes. So it doesn't have to be a full-time employee in the department, but it has to be direct access by student athletes to a mental health professional. That's one of the things we're gonna be working on. So lots of those kind of minimum level expectations were developed as a part of the Transformation Committee. You brought up mental health, that was actually gonna be my next point because in this role, and I think nationwide, we've seen the need um, for both education and the need for treatment from a mental health standpoint, especially with younger student athlete aged people across the country in recent years, and that's continued to grow. 
as you've gone through this, what has been the biggest change you've seen? Because 14 years ago wasn't nearly as prevalent, I would say, as it has been maybe just before COVID and definitely once we got through that whole stage. Mental health has probably been number one, but just health and well-being in general has been a huge change in the 14 years. Uh, the NCAA has been participating with the Department of Defense on a concussion study for the last, I don't know, 10 to 12 years. It's the largest uh, study of concussions ever ever done in, in the world, essentially, and the Department of Defense with our soldiers and student athletes are, are, are leading the way with that research. So the attention to uh, uh, medical attention, athletic training, mental health has been a huge change. And then of course, COVID brought us a whole new area uh, to be concerned about, but that, that's been a, a large change. And of course that all costs money, right? So all these schools out there are trying to figure out, and the mental health professionals and the athletic training one ends, end up being kind of a, a problem because those areas are societal. Uh, there's a shortage. Society, society is struggling with mental health. And so finding those mental health professionals, making sure we have enough of them for our student athletes, and then athletic training also, making sure we have enough of those at all of our practices and games is, is something that a lot of our um, schools across the nation are, are, are dealing with. One of the other recommendations you guys made, kind of in that same vein, but even more from a physical standpoint, was benefits for student athletes just after graduation, which I think will be tremendously helpful across the country. Yeah, so the FBS has been doing this uh, for a long, long time. And basically what we recommended is that for two years after graduation or, you know, a student athlete leading the team, essentially, um, they would be uh, provided with medical benefits for athletically related injuries. So someone has a knee injury that they deal with all through college. We don't just say we're done with you. When, when you graduate. So for two years, we would continue uh, to support that student athlete in whatever medical care they needed. Lots of concerns at the FCS level about what kind of dollar signs are attached to that. You know, very, very concerned about that. What my FBS co uh, colleagues tell me is that has not ended up being as expensive as they thought it was gonna be for a couple of reasons. One is that um, uh, most student athletes go get jobs and they have insurance, right? And so, it, their insurance becomes a secondary, a secondary insurance. Uh, it, it just hasn't ended up being quite as expensive. The, the rule that we're putting in place is actually for a full scholarship, so it wouldn't be for all of our student athletes, which I don't love that it's not for all of them, but that would also, of course, limit our liability uh, in a way that would be uh, more cost, cost effective for us, affordable. The NCAA is actually looking into, could we be self-insured? Could we create some kind of group policy that all schools could participate in and again bring down the cost for some of the schools with limited budgets. When we go back into the employment conversation and this just made me think about it, if that ever changed then all of a sudden you have workers comp claims and that shuts this down very quickly doesn't it? Well if you just started to think about it paying a minimum wage to your student athletes and one of the things that I always want people to understand is that student athletes commit to a school in a way that a traditional student does not commit in terms of time demands. They essentially work ridiculous numbers of hours at their sport and at academics, which is one of the reasons it's always been hard for them to have jobs and sure. do study abroad and internships and all of those things. They really do commit to us in, in a in a, in a very real way. And so if we just started trying to pay them minimum wage for all the hours that they, that they spend being an athlete, we, we couldn't do it, right? I mean, they did some estimates on just a football team being in the millions per year. So uh, it, it, 
the idea of employment, and then also just that relationship. Employees get fired. Um, it, I don't know that we, we want to be in that type of relationship with our student athletes. No, it doesn't really ring out to be horribly educational from that standpoint uh, not, not whatsoever. To me, not to me. Let's look back at your 14 years in this role. What were some of the highs and maybe even some of the biggest challenges that you look back now and feel really good about how you overcame? Well, my, I'm known for saying it's good to be a Redbird. Uh, and everywhere I find myself, whether it's a, a Valley meeting or a national meeting, I'm always really proud and uh, uh, happy to find out that we do it right, right? That we are in a, we're in a good situation. We don't always have the most money. We don't always have the most staff. We sometimes are, you know, are, are a little bit behind the FBS schools and some of the things we do, but we do things really, really well here at, at Illinois State. Um, I've had some just incredible experiences. You know, I was just thinking as I drove in today, one of the things I got to do uh, was to be on the interviewing team when we were looking at adding new schools to, uh, to the Valley. And at the time, the three that we went to were UIC, Valpo, and Loyola. And at that time, we added Loyola, but since then, we've added both other schools. The funny part is, is that when we left Loyola, they put on a great show, obviously well-resourced, really excited about being in the Valley, but none of us were convinced they could win in the Valley. <laughs> and now they've won so much that they've left us, right? So just, just really interesting things like that. Uh, the Title IX stuff the last year has been really exciting to me as a, as a female and, and wanting to see women's sports grow. Uh, my term on the board of directors has been fascinating. My favorite thing, my favorite committee all these years is the Committee on Academics. I spent almost 10 years on the Committee on Academics at the NCAA level, and we did wonderful things there. That's a, that's a group that I, I really, really enjoyed that experience. Um, lots of fun things at the Valley. It's just a great group of people. I've really enjoyed all of it. And of course, then the student athletes, right? Absolutely. Some wonderful student athletes. You know, after 14 years in this role, especially with the exposure that you've been at on a national level and the amount of time you've put into it, you know, there's that old saying, you don't want to know how the sausage is made. And the fact that you're still a huge college sports fan says an awful lot about you and gives us all, I think, a lot of hope for college athletics in general. Now, if in the Valley Tournament in a couple of weeks for the men or the women, whether or not it's down in St. Louis or out in Moline, if it happens to be an Illinois State SIU matchup, who are you rooting for? I always root for, root for my birds first, right? <laughs> in that matchup, it's always the Redbirds, uh, not only because I know where my paycheck comes from, but also just because of my uh, involvement in the athletics department. After that, though, then I am a Saluki fan. I have an undergrad and master's. My husband does too, my in-laws. If we started counting them up, uh, my husband's side, like six generations are SIU uh, graduates. So um, always the birds first, but then after that, I have to root for the dogs. Now you're in your home stretch here at Illinois State, retiring this summer. What is still next for you with regard to your role on the national committees? So the Transformation Committee is already wrapped up. We are essentially, you know, disbanded, which is wonderful, except for that now they've kind of sent us out as soldiers, right, to work with the groups that are putting this into operation. So I just came back from a Committee on Academics meeting last week. Uh, so we, we're, we're staying involved that way. My board term ends in August. 
I'll have served four years on the board of directors uh, in August, and I retired this summer. So it all wraps up nicely at the same time. Essentially, um, I could have retired actually a year ago, but I wanted to co- fulfill my commitment on the board of directors. And uh, uh, President Kenzie and Kyle, you know, agreed that that was a, a good time for me to finish up my role as far. So 14 years is actually quite a long time to be a faculty athletic rep. There's a few that have done it for longer, but um, honestly, I don't know if anybody here at ISU has ever been the FAR for 14 years. So, I will ask one final question. Having seen what you've seen in the last 14 years, if you were to give one bit of advice to the person who takes over as the FAR here at Illinois State, what might that be? Listen in the beginning and ask a lot of good questions, and then look for the opportunity to make the role your own. Uh, The faculty athletic rep rep position actually has very few requirements from the NCAA in terms of what we have to do. It's very very different from uh, school to school what they actually do. And so I, after a year or so of feeling like I really got my feet wet and knew what I was doing, started looking for ways that I could add value uh, to the athletics department. And so my recommendation to the next FAR is to obviously Obviously, you know, learn as much as you can and then look for things that you love to do and ways that you can uh, add value back to the athletics department. And uh, and I know the next person will probably love it just as much as I do. You leave some pretty big shoes to fill. (laughs) And I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Dr. Jerry Beggs, the faculty athletic representative here at Illinois State University. She's been our guest here on this week's episode of In the Nest. That'll do it for this episode. For our entire crew, this is John Fitzgerald. We'll talk to you next time right here on In the Nest. This has been In the Nest, the Illinois State Athletics podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review however you listen. The preceding has been a Learfield presentation on the Xfinity Mobile Redbird Sports Network. Some people just know bundling with Allstate means big savings. Just like they know the right ingredient means big flavor. They know honey on pizza is where it's at. And olive oil on ice cream is the cherry on top. And they know when you bundle home and auto with Allstate, you can save up to 25%. Mm-mm. Bundled savings vary by state and are not available in every state. Saving up to 25% is the countrywide average of the maximum available savings off the home policy. Allstate Vehicle and Property Insurance Company and Affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.